because you got a felony, they don't discriminate against me. I'm still I'm not no bad dude. I just did some bad things, but I'm no bad dude. And it's like, why do you have to constantly keep trying to convince somebody to say, okay, can I just become a productive member of society? Can you give me another chance? I hardly don't know, man. But I mean, if once they learn your past, you know, ooh, he's dangerous, you know. He's been to prison. That I've come up with said that it essentially takes two days to heal up from every single day that you are in prison. And so, if we think of it like that, um, then somebody who's been in a year, it's going to take them at least two years to transition back into life on the outside. 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 Don't think about what it's like to come back from prison. I'm Molly Mulroy, and this is Outside. you pretty much gonna go back to prison. If you don't have a trade, you don't have education, you prison doomed. Where you gonna go? Ain't nowhere to you go. You gotta go back to prison. Ain't nothing else for you to do. So, you know, you have no alternative but to go back to prison. Remember that Eastwood spent 42 years in prison. So he's been in and out of the system for a while. He actually went back to prison four separate times, although he says that one of those times he was actually innocent. Regardless, Eastwood knows what it's like to come home and have to figure out how to readjust to life outside, and he says that education is key for those trying not to wind up back behind bars. Unfortunately, finding educational opportunities, either inside prison walls or once you've come home, isn't as easy as one would hope. Mm-hmm. When I first was released, I wanted to go back to school. So while I was in the halfway house, I applied to un- the University of New Orleans. Um, and of course, the question, are you formally, um, have you been formally convicted of a felony? Mm-hmm. It's on the college application as well. So um, I had really good grades. I started college classes while I was in Tallahassee, Florida, the last institution I was in. And um, I think my average was, a, my GPA was like a 3.8 and um, in business management. So I applied. I had 24 hours, I think, credit. And um, I wasn't admitted to the school. Got a job, started working, um, got married, had my son. And I'm like, okay, I want to go back to school. So I'm going to try this again. I applied at UNO again. But this time I was like, well, let me just put no and see what happens. The only change on the application was yes and no on that um, box. And um, I was admitted. I got scholarships, everything. So now once I'm in school and they see what type of student I am, now I'm like, okay, you know, I have to tell you that on the application I did X, Y, Z. And even when I... A couple things here. First of all, Sarita took part in institutional education while still incarcerated. But that's not always offered. 
She went to three other institutions before being able to take classes in Tallahassee. The arguments for offering these types of educational programs, and even vocational or anger management courses, to incarcerated people are, of course, extensive. Advocates for these types of programs reference low recidivism rates, or the rate at which people go back to prison, and successful job attainment post-release. It's just hard to, uh, to quantify you know, what is rehabilitation and, and how to determine if somebody's uh, rehabilitated. And I think that one of the things that we need to take into consideration is uh, education. If you look at the numbers uh, in that regard, uh, you know, those individuals who have attained degrees uh, while incarcerated, the um, recidivism rate is almost nil. If we look at the numbers, like Nelson says, the statistics are pretty good. The Rand Corporation reports that, quote, on average, inmates who participated in correctional education programs had 43% lower odds of recidivating than inmates who did not, end quote. The same study found that these educational opportunities in prison help people find jobs when they come home. However, as Sarita's story shows, that's not always the case. And that's part number two, right? What's the use, really, of those types of programs if no one will let a formerly incarcerated person continue their education on the outside? Or if no one will hire them, despite the forklift license they worked for and studied for while incarcerated? On the other hand, Sarita did find a job eventually, as did Eastwood, and Nelson, and Terrence. Everybody that knew that, that some unconvicted felon came home and got a job. See, what I really think it is that when people come home from prison, they picky on a job that they want. They picky. I was home for two months and I got me a job. My partner been home for like a few weeks and he working now. Like, I don't see you, like, what people be talking about with that. And maybe Terrence is right that some people are just too picky and don't want a minimum wage job. But minimum wage jobs don't seem to provide an actual living wage. The Jesuit Social Research Institute at Loyola University, New Orleans, reported in 2014 that roughly 86,000 married couples with children in Louisiana don't have incomes that provide them financial security in Louisiana. And over 138,000 single mother families don't have these safety nets either. JSRI estimates that for a family of two in Louisiana, an economically safe annual income would be about $45,840. Full-time, full-year minimum wage jobs in Louisiana make about a third of that. Plus, about 70% of people coming home are high school dropouts, which can limit the realm of possibilities for employment. And many don't have driver's licenses, let alone a car, which can make the commutes to work lengthy and sometimes expensive. On top of that, some employers just choose not to hire formerly incarcerated people simply because they were incarcerated. Researchers from Arizona State University found in 2010 that past criminal offenses had a pretty severe impact on job opportunities. In the food service industry, for example, men with a prison record were significantly less likely to be called back for a job than their recordless counterparts. The study also noted that black and Latino men with a criminal background 
were less likely to be given a job than a white man with the same record. In the end, the study gave some policy suggestions, including job readiness preparation inside prison and computer skills training, a problem that Sarita mentioned in the last episode. There's actually some initiatives being set forth to end this type of post-incarceration discrimination. Ban the Box is a movement founded by All of Us or None, a group of formerly incarcerated people from around the country working to end job and housing discrimination against people with convictions. Before the campaign started in 2004, most employment and housing applications had a question where you had to check whether you had been convicted of a crime in the past. And, just as with Sarita's story about UNO, it often didn't end well for people with a criminal record. It's something Terrence thinks about, too. That's one thing I'm worried about. I hope me being a convicted felon don't stop me from being able to get a house or move into an apartment. Right, like when you want to move, leave your mom's house, like, mm-hmm. what's going to happen then? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I need this. I don't, I don't know how that's going to go. If Terrence decided to move to Newark, New Jersey, he might be okay. That's the only place where the Ban the Box campaign succeeded in getting the question taken off housing applications. For employment issues, though, Ban the Box has successfully managed to convince 45 cities and counties around the U.S. to take the conviction question off government job applications. And the same goes for seven different states. Some cities also require vendors and even private companies to keep the question away from employment apps. On the other hand, Professor Armstrong reminded me that these ban-the-box type initiatives don't really solve the bigger issue here. The form may not ask about criminal records right off the bat, but that doesn't mean an employer won't ask later, or people won't be treated differently once their record becomes public. It's that same stigma we talked about in episode two, that perceived criminal taint that not only changes the way people treat you, but also affects your access to resources necessary for a successful transition. Once a, person, once, once a lot of these people find out you've been to prison, they don't want to hire you. No. They're ready to get that job to someone that's a citizen and to give it to someone that's an ex-con, you know. I wouldn't want nobody to hold that against me because I've been a problem, you know, but I know they're going to do it. I know they are. The Arizona State University study that I mentioned a bit ago found that black and Latino men with a criminal record were less likely to receive a job than a white man with the same record. But a sociologist from Harvard University has found repeatedly over the past few decades that black and Latino men without a criminal record are still less likely to receive a job than a white man with a criminal record. Professor Quigley from Loyola Law School once told me that it's impossible to talk about the justice system without talking about race, because race and poverty are so intertwined in the system. So why is that? A lot of people in this business are concerned, uh, and I think with justification to be concerned, that when language of strong law and order, language of dragnet arrests is used by any elected officials, 
or advocates, it kind of harkens upon us a very bad time when we thought arresting everything that moved made a difference. And in fact, I believe we all have come to recognize that really wasn't the best use of law, and in many cases it was unjust. That's the voice of Renal Surpass, the former superintendent of the New Orleans Police Department and current chairman for the Law Enforcement Leaders to Reduce Crime and Incarceration. What he's more or less referencing here is that the rhetoric of law and order, as well as specific sentencing laws over the years, has been created to capitalize on that us-versus-them mentality we keep talking about. People across the U.S. now argue that the increase of longer, harsher sentences in for-profit prisons that actually has nothing to do with the crime rates has become this system of mass incarceration that specifically targets them, the thugs, the welfare queens, illegal immigrants, poor people, and people of color. I mean, uh, the racial makeup of um, prisoners in Louisiana uh, is, is skewed towards African Americans. Um, I don't think that's not by design. I, th I think that it is uh, by design. Um, like I said, we read the history of how our prisons started down here. That's that's what it was for. Um, they, they they sprouted up um, when uh, slavery had supposedly ended, you know. And but as soon as it ended, you know, they started rounding up people and you know and using prisoners for you know, the same labor that uh, they used the slaves for. You know, and it's, it just hasn't stopped. It's continued. Lots of people agree with Nelson's assessment. Think about it. Ever heard of someone being pulled over because they were driving while black? Or the cocaine crack disparity? For years, courts disproportionately sentenced majority black crack offenders 100 times more harshly than predominantly white powder cocaine offenders, even though they're just different forms of the same drug. Or what about that white kid, Brock Turner, who was convicted for sexually assaulting an unconscious woman on a college campus? and how he only went to prison for three months because the judge was worried about his future as an athlete. But Corey Beatty, a black college athlete who also sexually assaulted an unconscious woman on campus, received a mandatory minimum of 15 to 25 years in prison. We'll be talking more about sex offenses in the next episode, just so you know. Even Kisha Kalix, the probation officer I spoke to, has noticed a disparity in her line of work that doesn't quite add up. And I did see um, in, in that the majority of the inmates there were African-American, but I, I never studied it or no numbers, but just visually. Um, I, why do I think that is or, or you know, um, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the, the, the cases that I've worked with, you know, um, drugs or alcohol or, you know, of course, any nationality has those issues, for lack of a better word. Um. In fact, her observation is correct. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration reported in 2011 that white people were twice as likely to have tried cocaine than their black and Latino counterparts. And white people were more likely to use other drugs, such as marijuana, meth, hallucinogens, and pain relievers. Remember that book I mentioned in the first episode, The New Jim Crow? Michelle Alexander writes that, quote, although the majority of illegal drug users and dealers nationwide are white, three-fourths of all people imprisoned for drug offenses have been black or Latino, 
end quote. Some of those drug offenses can lead to years in prison or severe felony charges. And as I mentioned in the first episode, the disenfranchised citizens that aren't allowed to vote because of a felony charge are often disproportionately African-American. In 2010, the Sentencing Project reported that one out of 56 non-black voters lost their right to vote because of a felony conviction. And that's vastly different than one out of 13 black voters who lost their right to vote for the same reason. And so, as Professor Quickly said, it would be foolhardy to talk about the criminal justice system and its effects on people's lives without discussing race. The system that disproportionately incarcerates poor people of color also disproportionately targets them when they come home from prison. And without easy access to educational opportunities, employment, or housing once back on the outside, it's like Eastwood said, you could be prison doomed. Outside is brought to you by Nisha Call Productions. My editorial advisor is Dr. Laura Murphy, and the theme song was composed by Daniel Bourgeois and Michael Kincannon. Thank you.